I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is a place where we dig deep into shoeboxes stored on the top of wardrobes or under beds, in attics or cellars, to consider picture postcards uh, and explore what it is that causes us to keep hold of these precious cardboard rectangles and what we can learn from them. Um, Each time, I welcome two guests, and it's their postcards that act as little clues to direct us towards memories, mysteries and stories. I'm Tom Jackson and I'm delighted to say that today my guests are historians, historians both, uh, Karen Averby and Alex Mayhew. Alex and Karen, welcome to Podcast from the Past. Hello. Hi. <laughs> now, Karen Averby is a historian and research consultant and she researches all kinds of things, um, especially seaside and industrial heritage and communities. Also house histories, historic hotels and working class history and heritage. She's also dug into 20th century vegetarian restaurants, bell foundries, Victorian toilets and, most controversial thing of our time, statues. Her latest book, though, tells the story of British seaside hotels. And Karen joins us today bearing a SN8 postmark. What's that? That is uh, my one of my special places um, that I like to go and visit, um, Avebury in Wiltshire. Ah. It's um, a Neolithic monument, which is a, quite a far cry from what I do today, which is researching the built environment. But um, I started off um, my career, well, sort of in heritage years ago with a huge love for the Neolithic and prehistory in Britain. And Avebury has remained for me that one special place that I visit today and I just go there and it's calm and it's lovely and it's historic. Um, there are also historic buildings there too, which is a kind of a nice crossover. But it's it's just very lovely uh, to visit there, um, whether it's windy, rainy, whatever the weather, I just like to go there and spend time, sometimes with a picnic, sometimes just walking around. But, um, so is, is, is the Neolithic lovely. a kind of antidote to the world of archives because it predates them all? It does. I mean, that's the thing about prehistory. There, you know, no written record, um, and yes, it's it's something altogether different. You find out a lot of information about it from archaeology. I've got a background in archaeology as well, um, so um, it's it's a very very different discipline altogether. But what I love about Avebury as well is is seeing how it's um, been adapted and used and changed over the years by different. 
uh, people, you know, throughout the ages. So you have communities using it today in a, a different way than you would have used it years ago. Um, farmers, for example, um, at one point were breaking down the stones to use for building um, in the local area. So it's just, it, it means different things to different people over, over the years. And that's something I like about it. It's timeless and yet it's very much in the here and now as well. Karen, do you still send postcards? Oh, I do. I love sending postcards. I love receiving postcards. Um, you know, it stems from um, when I was a child and you'd have to go, when you went on holiday, you'd have to send a postcard to absolutely everybody. You'd, you know, come out of the shop with handfuls of things and just, but yeah, it's, it's a lovely thing to do. And I buy postcards as well for myself from places I've visited, whether it's the seaside or a stately home, you know, wherever. So I have quite a big collection of postcards, I could say. Now, Dr Alex Mayhew is a fellow at the LSE. Um, he's a historian working on the cultural, military and social history of war. Um, he has a particular interest in the First World War and combatants' mentalities. And he explores how environment, social grouping, psychology uh, all informed soldiers' frames of reference and their perceptions of crisis. Um, along the way, and in that work, he has written specifically about the role postcards played in the lives of British troops in the First World War. And we're going to find out a bit about that later. Um, but right now, Alex comes to us with a OX7 postmark. Am I, am I deciphering that correctly? Yeah, just about. I mean, the true postmark would be SE13, but I think I originate <laughs> in OX7 for my sins. Where's that? Where's that? That is, uh, well, Heathrop, but it's very close to Chipping Norton, and I have spent my life trying to shun the, uh, the, uh, the idea that I'm part of the Chipping Norton set, uh, which, which I'm not, and Chipping Norton actually has a, a very strong history of anti-establishmentism, but I think that's been hidden by people like Rebecca Brooks and David Cameron and Jeremy Clarkson over the last few <laughs> years uh, beneath the your, veneer of... Your beloved neighbours. Exactly. Uh, my beloved neighbours. But that place still has a, a place in your heart. Yeah, I think it's hard to ever remove home entirely from your heart, whether or not that's positive or negative. Uh, so I think whenever I talk about home, that's the place that I'm describing. And, and you're actually talking about a, a village near Chipping Norton, are you? Yeah, Heathrop. So it's, is that is that uh, very about, rural? It sounds beautiful. I mean, it's, yeah, it's about three miles away from Chipping Norton which when you're a teenager without a car is not ideal. Uh, but as you grow older, you come, come to love the fact that it's isolated. And it's, it's very close to a place called Heathrop Park. So it was originally built at the end of the 19th century as housing for all of the workers in the estate. Oh. And then over time became private houses. But I, I believe that my mum's house has actually only ever had three owners, which is quite nice. And up until the 1990s, it was actually connected to a spring nearby it only became part of the the water mains in 1990s i think late 1990s in fact um but it's stunning around there it's uh, undulating hills and nearby there's actually some neolithic monuments as well going back oh. to what karen was saying there's the rollwright stones which oh, i think have always fascinated me slightly um there's all of these stories that uh I think it's about witches i can't quite remember what the uh, the the stories that surround that place are uh but Again, nobody knows exactly why they're there other than that they probably serve some symbolic purpose. Um, and that's not the history that I study because I like to have a little bit more certainty. Uh, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Very good. And it certainly gives the place atmosphere. Exactly. 
And Alex, when did you last send a postcard? So this is uh, this is probably my dark secret. Is I I collect and buy postcards, even postcards that aren't from the period that I study. But I don't really very often send postcards to people. My partner sends postcards very frequently to myself and her family when when she's away. But I seem to collect postcards more for my my personal enjoyment than to share an experience with others, um, which probably subverts their intended purpose somewhat. But I have a lot of postcards on my fridge, which are representative of different moments on holidays. And I have an increasingly large collection of postcards from the First World War. I thought you were going to say you had an increasingly large fridge. No, I wish I did, though. <laughs> Imagine I, I having bought... to upgrade your fridge because you bought too many postcards. Anyway, it's a stupid I, I'm sure some people have had to do that in the past. But yeah, I've got an increasingly large collection of First World War postcards. Rather than large fridges. And I mean, you don't really need to prove that you're more of a geek than when you do a history PhD, but somehow I've embraced that and have now developed a, a, a postcard collection which annoys my partner. <laughs> Before we see and hear about the cards that Alex and Karen have prepared for us today, um, I'll give you a quick one of mine. And this is um, Hailing Island. It's a multi view, uh, four images, um, and the images are of. Oh, they don't tell you what they are. They tell you what they are, um, but they're beach scenes um, and a pub on the harbour, a pub called the Royal Oak, which looks very nice. There's some swans in the water, which would doubtless have sandwiches thrown towards them when people were drinking their pint of ale. Um, it's a, it's a it's a Constance card. I rather like Constance as a as a publisher, um, and fun enough. At one time, they were based just down the road from where I'm sitting right now, in uh, Streatham. At uh, this stage, they were in Littlehampton, um, and it says, um, "Having a this is sent to Woking in Surrey, not that far from the coast anyway, really." 1973. It says, "Dear ELS, know that's someone with those initials, or it's three people." It says, "Having a lovely time. Weather is smashing. I'm missing our telly, but I shall make up for it when we get home." And it's from uh, Rosie and Donna. I just thought the idea of being on holiday and saying how much you're missing watching television <laughs> seemed an unusual and rather pedestrian message, really. I mean, that's the great thing about postcards written from people on holiday. They're real streams of consciousness, aren't they? they yes. They, after, if they read them back afterwards, they think, why? What was I thinking? But they're just something that people just dashed off in the moment, I think. You're right. You can't even correct it like you'd correct a text <laughs> message. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I, I like the idea that... that... Go on. Sorry. No, I was going to say that depressingly that reminds me a lot of my uh, my younger self <laughs> on holidays, uh, desperately seeking out English television whilst we were in the most beautiful surroundings <laughs> in the south of France or in Italy, and my poor parents pulling their hair out trying to work out whether the house we were approaching had actually got an English television. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I was going to be stomping my feet. Thankfully, I've grown out of that now. Yeah, You've almost grown out of it. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> well, now we're all worried about the Wi-Fi signal. Exactly. But I like the idea that there's a sort of um, a balance in the world, that if you go a week without watching television, you, you can make up for it when you get home. Especially as in those days, television was completely linear. It was, you, couldn't, you couldn't catch up on anything. You, you just literally have to watch more of it. You couldn't, you couldn't miss, catch up on those episodes of Neighbours you missed. You'd just have to watch Neighbours and then something else. 
Hailing Island looks very nice there. I, I, there's something about the colour on a um, on those Constance cards that I I do find very very uh, evocative. They're not they're not sort of super saturated like a John Hind card, and they're not all faded like a, a J Arthur Dixon card. They just they just hit for me. They hit the sweet spot. Yeah, well done, Constance. I should remind those of you listening at home that images of these cards, including the one I've been rhapsodising over, uh, are on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can see that these are real cards that we're talking about. We're not making it up. We're not dreaming them. Now, Karen and Alex, you've both been kind enough to do your homework. You've dug out some cards uh, for this long-distance remote recording um, to, to, to share with each other and with our listeners and with me. Now, Alex, let's start with you. Um, the first card you're going to talk about, that actually is kind of germane to the work you've been doing, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really fascinating example of the things that I've encountered in the archives, actually. But, I, I mean, to be true to the show, I've chosen something from my collection rather than a picture of something that I located in situ. And it's a uh, studio image, although sometimes these were actual photographs that were then printed as postcards. In other circumstances, there were photographs which were then painted. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure which one this would be. It looks like it's a, a true photograph, though. And it's of a British soldier, um, although I'm not entirely sure that his uniform is entirely authentic, uh, kissing the cheek of a, of a, of a beautiful, beautiful young lady who looks very happy about that fact. Um, and they're holding hands and she's caressing his neck. Uh, I think they're just holding hands, although perhaps there might be something else going on there. The, uh, the hand is very close to the breast. Um, to the heart, and should we say. To the heart, exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing about the post, these postcards is that often they're seen as this, uh, this uh, emblem of modernity, but often they're very classical images that are used on them, at least at this stage. So the mm. heart is a much more likely... Uh, much more likely motif, although there were cards which played on uh, less classical themes, shall we say. And there is a message, printed message, that lies below that says, here are kisses for you, um, and a series of X's. Um, and it's from a series, actually interestingly, uh, seemingly printed by a French, uh, a French producer, uh, since it says Paris on the, uh, on the other side of the card, which really gives a sense of just how international the postcard market was at this stage. Uh, these were produced for an English-speaking audience because there were so many British, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian soldiers in France, um, but, but produced by a French company nonetheless. And then we move on to the, the second side of the cards. And these are the kind of things that really fascinate me because they really give you a, a glimpse into a moment of history and it's almost like they're reaching out at you. And it was written by a, uh, an unknown soldier who hasn't put his name here, which suggests that the, the uh, recipient would have recognised the handwriting, um, interestingly. And it was, it was uh, written on the 13th of September, 1917. This is concurrent with the Third Battle of Ypres, although the unit that this soldier was in, because we do know that, it was the 1st, 5th St South Staffordshire Regiment. Uh, they weren't in the Ypres salient, thankfully for them, although this is the day before they went into the trenches, which Goodness. probably gives another, another layer to why the soldier might have been writing this message. And so 
interesting there's there's one block of writing and then some other little notes scribbled in so it says dear miss smith just a pc postcard hoping you are well it seems ages since i saw you please remember me to all your brothers and then uh-huh. at the top corner it also says write soon and then in smaller handwriting just under dear miss smith it says write to a lovely soldier in the first fifth south staffs france so that gave you the clue yeah exactly and i mean this is this is the kind of thing you see quite frequently in letters and and postcards it's this uh this desire to be remembered to all at home and um because we have these glimpses of the soldiers' lives, but actually these are momentary. These are uh, a very small part of their daily routine, and it's, it gives you a sense of the kind of things they were thinking about outside of the time they had to write letters and cards home. Um, a preoccupation with people thinking about them on the other side of the English Channel. And then the really fascinating thing to me, and I, I probably spend far too much time doing this part, uh, <laughs> is looking at the address and thinking about what that means. And so this was sent to uh, Miss H. Smith. Uh, it's, it looks like Suppenhurst, but I think it's Tuppenhurst Farm, Armitage, near, um, is it Ruggle, Rugglery? Ruggery? Oh, Ru- um, Rugely, I think. Rugely. Rugely, there we, there we go. Staffordshire, that's, that's your part England. of the world, I think, isn't it, Karen? It is. Not so far <laughs> Yes, off. It, it's definitely Rugely. Do you, uh, do you know Rugely at all? Well, I'm, I'm from the Midlands, so I, I know of it. I don't know anybody that lives there, but... Uh, you don't know Miss Smith by any chance. Yeah, I Do don't you know, know any Smith? descendants of the Smiths, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's well, it's an easy guess, Smith, I think, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's true. Although the interesting thing is that Toppenhurst Farm is still there. They have a, ah. they have a farm and cafe. And wow, you must have you been? Have you been? No, I, I should go. Straight um, after lockdown. Exactly. It was a recent discovery. Uh, they claim to be the same family that have owned it for 100 years, which... Oh. Um, means that I don't think they would quite be the Smiths, but I know that the the farm was sold. Um, it used to, at this point, I think it probably would have been part of an estate. But I did and look at... it would at be her Warman brothers, Warman. probably, who took over the farm. It, yeah, well, maybe not one of them, because I looked at the, the war memorial or the records of the war memorial in Armitage, and there is a Smith who died in 1917. Uh-huh. So one does wonder whether or not all of those brothers would have been able to receive... Uh, the remembrances of the the right. sender. Gosh, it's very interesting. I, I and mean, lots 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 of things occur to me. Looking at it, I, I I don't look at these first of all cards very often, and I, I will look more at them having spoken to you and, and and read what you've been writing. And one thing that strikes me about these is the often an image you'll see is the the the, the soldier dreaming of of life at home. And the sweetheart at home in a little, almost in a little thought bubble, isn't it? That's the, and and you've got a sort of discolouring on this that looks a bit like it might be where that thought bubble would would often sit. And I just wonder if there was a sort of development of images that you would have seen in Victorian England, where you would have had um, it would often be thoughts of of family at home or father father is away, uh, and the family are thinking of father or father is thinking. And and that sort of transposed into more of a romantic thing during the First World War when there's so many young men were away. Because often they're dreaming and thinking of loved, uh, lovers at home or sweethearts at home rather than um, children necessarily. I mean, I don't know, is, that, is that nonsense or is, is there a sort of slight... Does that aesthetic kind of shift during the First World War? I think that it does play on that aesthetic. I mean, most of the 
the motifs that, or many of the motifs one season cards are things that were picked up from the pre-war culture and adapted for, like you said, the, the, the reality of a war where so many men were away from home. And it's not just that, though, I think, although it's hard to disentangle where culture starts and ends. So you also see similar imagery in the diaries and letters and soldiers' journals written by soldiers at the time. And so it's, it's a combination of both playing on pre-war tropes and also really adapting the card designs to things that were meaningful to soldiers that existed yep. in their, their internal culture. So you, you, you often really genuinely see the same descriptions. And so when they were picking up a card, often it, it represented something that would have taken many more words for them to convey. And equally, many of these soldiers were semi-literate. They, they mm. benefited from the Ed Edwardian education system. It doesn't mean that they were um, willing to or able to create well worded narratives of how they felt about the world and that it might also have been anathema just to their culture mm -hmm. um and so i think that it both plays on those pre-war tropes and it also genuinely depicts the kind of things that soldiers were thinking and feeling at the time uh, and equally i think that they they play a part in helping soldiers make sense of what was going on at the home front as well so you don't see the reality of the home front in these imaginary bubbles. You see, mm. you see a, a, a home which is constructed around the pre-war norms. So the men are still the breadwinners and the women are waiting at home. Their parents are waiting at home. Their children are waiting at home for them to return. Yeah, just waiting, really. Just waiting, exactly. Not living their lives in a way that might make the soldiers who are disconnected from them anxious. Yes. And, and in a way, that, that, that because the world is frozen, the, the, the world to some extent is holding their breath, a, a phenomenon we're used to now in a different way. But this sense yeah. that um, back home, everything is just, it, it'll all pick up again, but we just have to wait. We have to go through, for the young men, a dreadful ordeal. Exactly. I, I think that's the, the, the pandemic has created so many parallels in the things that I've been writing about and thinking about as I, as I prepare my book. And I, I will say that I use the term new normal in my book manuscript before COVID struck. Good and I work. I have to put a footnote, a footnote which explains that. Um, but when no you have a future... You. Well, I know. I mean, I, I, it's ruined it for me. But when you have a future that's so uncertain, um, hard to construct, and I think if we look back at at least the first lockdown, that was something that we all experienced, you have to look to the past as a way to make sense of the present. Yes. And those imagery, the imagery of soldiers thinking about these classical... Um, structures of home that is part of that process it makes sense of that present for them yeah i want to ask you one practical question about this which we may, you may not know the answer to, because this is a french card mm. and it's a french card that probably never got sold in britain it would have just been sold in france because it was specifically for servicemen is that right I, I, don't, I couldn't say that for sure, but my suspicion is that that is the case, yes. And if that is the case, sounds like I'm in a court of law. I'm not trying to catch yeah. you out. But <laughs> I, the bit I have trouble understanding is quite how these cards were bought by the soldiers. Did people go, did, did French people come up to them with, you know, a box of them on a tray? Or, or did, you, did they happen to pass a village that, the, 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 the sort of, the nuts and bolts of the consumption, the transaction, I find feels very vague in my mind I can't kind of picture it yeah I think this is another one of those ways in which the postcard is a fascinating window onto another part of a history that you might not have expected to encounter so 
The world behind the trench lines was one that still contained civilians. In some areas, they'd left because it was it was too dangerous. But in many of the towns and villages that soldiers occupied behind the uh, behind the front lines, sometimes only mile a few miles behind the front lines, there were still civilians, and many of them adapted their local economies to suit their new reality. Right. So they opened estaminets, small cafes for soldiers, and they would also sell trinkets to them. Um, right. Another really fascinating postcard uh, of the First World War, of postcard typology of the First World War, is uh, these knitted or sewn postcards. Oh, yes. And the, so the woven silks, not the woven silks, the embroidered silks. Exactly that. And those were things that actually some civilians would, would make and sell directly to the soldiers. But you would also have shops that I think would import these cards and then sell them to them. And in base camps, there were YMCA uh, establishments that would also sell things like this. Right. And also some really big towns where there were still a lot of shops and they would surely have brought in produce which was attractive to their new clientele, mainly English-speaking clientele. Of course, um, And so they, each of these cards is, a, is a, a moment in which a British soldier interacted with somebody of a, another, another national background. And there are so many lost stories there. But sometimes you do see... A soldier writing, I picked this up off a, a wonderful old French lady. Um, I, I've been showing this postcard to all of my, uh, my French companions. Um, and so you do get momentary glimpses of these interactions between the British soldiers and the French civilians. But I, I think it was almost certainly bought from a French shop or a YMCA, YMCA establishment that uh, sold things like this to the British soldiers. And, and the photograph probably taken in Paris then? Yeah, one would imagine, which would explain why the the uniform looks like it might be slightly off. I mean, it's a I'm bit not, generic, isn't it? It's a bit generic, and I'm not I'm not one of those historians that is so hot on exactly what uniforms look like at different periods of the war. But I'm sure if you showed this to somebody with that kind of eye, they would yeah. pick out flaws with it. But sensibly, they've put quite a lot of his detail in shadow, rather beautifully exactly, actually, because yeah. the light is all on hers. It's a, it's a lovely piece of photography. Yeah, I agree. Very good, very good. Well, we're going to hear more about the First World War. We'll leave, we'll leave, it, leave the trenches there for the minute. Um, Karen, now, what's the first card that's landed on your doormat? We've got something a bit... Um, well, I think this is referred to normally as a novelty, isn't it? This dates from the same era. Um, this is, um, as you call it, a novelty card with um, an oyster on it. And um, it's an unposted card, but with um, a very lovely message on the back. Um, now, this is quite sentimental to me, this card. Um, oh. It comes from a collection of about 50 postcards um, that I inherited from my mum. Um, oh. She acquired them from her next-door neighbour. Um, when she, she grew up in Birmingham um, in a terraced house, youngest of six, and next door was this chap called George Friend. And um, she, they had this very un unlikely friendship, but it was a very sweet one. And he had this collection of postcards, and they were mostly from written by him oh, um, when he served in the First World War. So this card is actually written by George to his sweetheart. Um, wow. So there's all sorts of uh, strands going on with this card. Um, yes, as, as often is the case. <laughs> it is, and it's, it's quite interesting because um, what, a lot of the cards that are in this collection are very similar to the ones Alex was describing, the embro right. the embroidered cards and... Um, cards in, a, in sets, you know, um, telling stories of mourning lost loves and regrets, regretting losing their lost loves and 
that they're absolutely beautiful. And it was very difficult to actually choose this one. But I chose this one in particular because um, we used to look at these as children, as my mum would have looked at um, with Mr George, she would have looked at these cards with him as a child as well. Mm. And this one in particular, because it is, it's quite amusing for a, for a child, I think, because it, you open, the question is, what noise, a noise, a noisy oyster? And you open it up and inside there is a, a rather sort of harassed chap with a child standing there going, why? A noisy, 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 noisy oyster. And it's, so the, it's, the, 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 it's, I should explain that the, the shell, the, the, the grey yes. shell of the oyster flips down um, <laughs> to reveal this image behind it. And yes. it's a domestic scene with a bloke in his pyjamas and a mm. wailing child, I think. Yes. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a young child, we found this hilarious. And it's actually quite, um, you know, we looked after these postcards as children because it's still intact. You know, you mm. can still, it's not come away at all. And that's but, um, rare, I think, with these. these it is rare. They, because kids play with them, as simple as that. But, but we, you know, we loved going through these postcards and we, we looked after them very well. And I think things like this stick with you as well. I mean, in, in recent years, uh, myself, my other half, my mum and um, my sister, we were doing a, a, some sort of silly quiz. And the question was, what noise, a noise, a noisy oyster? <laughs> and um, my mum, myself and my sister in unison, sings on unison, all to the amusement of my other half, just sang out, you know, a noisy, noise, a noisy, a noisy oyster. Um, so things like it's that do stuck in your brain. You. It was unrehearsed completely, yes, um, all, all three of us. Um, so Brilliant. that was quite a nice shared moment, both from our childhood, my mum's childhood, and also, you know, more recently as well. Yeah, it takes um, you back to sort of, I, what, I mean, where does that, that jingle, that jangle of words come from? Is it? Do you think it's like an Edwardian musical song or something? Or? It, it was obviously, a, a, I mean, because I've seen it in, a, in other contexts as well, um, sort of, you know, in, in sort of jokes, you know, sort of, probably other cards, actually. Um yeah, I, I don't it's, actually it's know where very it comes from. That'll be so interesting. It does something yeah. to your brain, doesn't it? It's fun. <laughs> it does. Something, the it way that the, the the bits of your brain to do with language get yes. get a kind of um, it's like a, it's like having a slug of alcohol or something. Something strange happens for a minute. It is or for the, the, a split second. <laughs> there is. I mean, there's another card in this collection as well. It's, it's a nut, and that similarly opens out. And there's a there's a joke there. I can't remember what it is because it's the oyster one that really is the one that stuck with me. I think. Yeah. Um, so it it means a lot to me because it meant a lot to my mum as well. Um, you know who's who's no longer with us. So that's how I've oh, inherited gosh, it's these sort of cards. Quadruply powerful <laughs> and resonant. Yes, there is. But it's love. It's a lovely. They're lovely collection to have. And um, you know, I'm very. Um, I, lo I love having them because it's part of her, and I now you know part of her memories and now my memories too. But well, this, um, this George, is printed by George Alfred Stiebel, isn't it? Yes, this is. It's I interesting. They specialised in these um, novelties. Yes, I've not actually seen this particular one anywhere else. Um, but, you know, they must be out there somewhere, perhaps. I, now, I, I could be getting this wrong, but I think a certain number of embroidered cards, certainly, or maybe I'm thinking more of the woven cards, were issued under the Alpha name. I think it was the, actually it was the, it was the woven cards. So I, okay. think they, I don't think this company made them, but I think they, they uh, distributed them and that Alpha brand mm. was on them. So there's, okay. there's even more of a connection with those first world yes. war cards. But what, what's the message? Can can you decipher it for us? Yes, I can. Um, my my um, years as an archivist come in handy. Um, so it says. Um, so this is from George to his sweetheart. Uh, my only darling, have just received your letter, dearest, but haven't had time, haven't time to answer it, as we are off to Scotland right away, and there isn't time. So I've just had to scribble a postcard, but will answer your letter as soon as possible, dear. 
with all my love from yours forever, George. Um, which is lovely. But the sad thing is, George never married. So we don't know right. who this sweetheart was. Oh. The fact he has it in his possession. It didn't do than, the trick. <laughs> no, it obviously never reached. Well, we presume it didn't reach his uh, his sweetheart. But there are other cards in there as well, um, written to his love. Also to his sister as well. Uh-huh. Um, they li- The family lived in Greenwich at the time, right. um, moved to Birmingham subsequently. And he... He uh, lived next door to my mum with, I think, with his father and his sister, although they they were long gone by then. And um, he died when my mum was 19 and she was past these postcards because they meant a lot to her um, as she grew up and she kept them. They they were actually in a a brown paper bag for many years, which slowly disintegrated over time. And I've now got them in a a nice little archival box or nicely protected. Finally, someone knows how to look after things. I did but my these best. Co- you could, there was all kinds of debate and discussion about whether you were allowed to send these through the post. I think the suggestion was you should have used a penny stamp because they weren't true postcards oh. because they had other things going on, which is Ooh. maybe why it was sent. If it was sent at all, it would have been sent in an envelope. Mm. I mean, it's quite interesting the, the fact that it's back in his possession. Um, so whether she returned returned it then to him oh, or almost as a formal thing, it. sort of. Um, yes, I. We, we'll never know. I guess, it feels a bit like something out of Jane Austen, doesn't it, returning your it letters? It is. We don't even know the name of, of his only darling. So. Oh, the thing I love about this hard. postcard is it really it really gives you a sense of how postcards were used by individuals as well. So this is part of a wider, a wider communication system between uh, George and whoever this unknown love was. And it was used just to bridge gaps between the other letters between them and... I just wonder, I wonder what they included. How much more effusive was he in those? Uh, how many times was he not responded to? Well, it's true, isn't it? Because oh, often yeah. postcards are seen as the poor relation of the, of the letter. And, and it's something that I observe a lot with people saying, I'll be sending you a letter soon, or sorry, I haven't written you a letter. But because postcards are pretty, the postcard survives. And the letter, you know, there, are, there, there is not the huge archive. I mean, there, I'm sure there are many letters out there but not in the same way that people keep them uh, to collect them in a straightforward way. A letter is so personal, so it only has the words and the meaning. A postcard has this sort of public element to it, so you can put it in an album, you can keep it in a drawer. It isn't always, it doesn't have, um, it's not overburdened with sort of emotional power. Mm. I mean, I, changing the subject, so I just like the way that these this is written slanted, you know, it's not following the rules of, Writing across straight does that? I mean, that happens quite a lot, doesn't it? With postcards, you you can get people writing diagonally across them, and, and more also... so in those early days, I think, than now. Mm. That's interesting, um, isn't it? In itself. Yeah. No. I, I'm. I, yes. I mean, I know about angled stamps. I don't really think about angled writing, but also the writing is so different from what we have now. Writing changes so quickly. You know, this is a hundred years ago, and the writing is. You'd be very hard-pressed to find anyone in this country who writes like that. It's just different. It's just different now. It reminds me of my grandmother wrote very much like that. Uh, Maybe she was taught by somebody of the same generation as George, but her handwriting looked almost exactly like this. But then the conventions in the language as well are very different um, to what one would find now. Yeah. Although, I mean, funny enough, a few phrases do kind of stay the same across the whole mm. life of of postcards. And and then I must say one of the things that I like about old postcards is how of, often 
how the message feels very immediate and modern and spoken because mm. the the way words are put together, the way language, the sentences are structured in, in, in post is often closer to speech than it is to formal writing. This is relatively formal, actually, but it's but it's very openly emotional. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the... The fascinating thing about postcards at this time is that they they gave an excuse for people to be emotional. It's much easier to be emotional in a card that's already emotional. Yes, yeah. Well, it's like it's like having a greetings card saying, you know, I hope you have a lovely birthday. Mm. Half the work is done for you. If you want, you can just sign it. Mm. This is it's sort of um, uh, in, in industrialized emotion. It's it's been done for you in a factory in a printing press. <laughs> They've already done half the half the um, the feeling for you, which for British people is perfect. Exactly. Yeah, we all struggle with that. Very, very good. Oh, look, um, that is a, a fantastic card, and a, you know, that's not leaving your archival box. But I think there are collectors who'd find that very interesting because it's because it's all in one piece and it's such fun. Such it a fun is. One. It's it's a great one. I'm glad I chose that one. I, although I did find it I say, difficult. There were just so many to choose from. The only thing uh, yeah, is, that, that, would have, that would have been better if we'd been in the room together. Because uh, you could have, yeah, you, we could have had the reveal. But, yes. um, no, no. <laughs> the reveal is everything. The reveal is the best bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but no, it's great. Very good. Thank you. I'll do another quick one of mine. This is um, Liverpool Cathedral. You know, these are very modern cards compared with these uh, wonderful First World War and, and, and equivalent cards we've been looking at. This is, this is a card published by Dennis, one of the great old publishers. Um, Using using the, the, the photo color process, they call it, just a slightly washed out color card, really. And um, I can't see the date on it. It's sixties. It's pre decimal, definitely, because there's three penny stamps on it. And it was sent to Mrs. Anders Miss Anderson at Guy's Hospital, uh, South East London. And well, it's not really South East London, it's South London, but it's um, it's an SE postmark. It says. Um, Weather lovely, but having a nice time. Went up to coast for some for four days, three days, last week. Otherwise, haven't done anything much. Please, could you see if you can get tickets for Pete Seeger's concert at Albert Hall on October the 2nd and see if Joan Baez is doing one? Um... She's in Manchester, in brackets. Hope works all right. See you soon. Love, Kate. So I suspect Kate also works at the nurse, uh, Guy's Hospital as a nurse, because she's written to Miss P. Anderson at the nurses' homes. And anyway, she was asking her friend to try and get her some tickets to go and see the um, great folk singer, Pete Seeger. And, and she, clearly she couldn't get onto Google to find out whether Joan Baez was also going to be appearing that night at the Albert Hall. So we'll never know if she got the tickets or she had a good time. <laughs> I like to think she did. Yeah, so I think she positive. probably did. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. There's something about it. The, 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 the sort of birth of the American folk movement at the same time as a, a, a large lumpen picture of Liverpool Cathedral um, yeah. sent to Guy's Hospital. There's it's a contrast. Things, yeah, and, and sort of meaning flying in all different directions at once. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the postcard podcast. And my guests today are historians Alex Mayhew and Karen Averby. Uh, well, here's a surprise. We've received a postcard. And um, the postcard is a lovely card of a, of a Mountie on a horse, on horseback. Um, it says Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And um, the postmark says, why wait for spring? Do it now. And the card is from Mrs. Uh, Rotor uh, of Toronto, um, Ontario. And she says, I think the answer is... $7,722.85. Well, sorry, Mrs. Rotor. I'm afraid that's the wrong answer. Right, let's get on with the postcard stories. Alex, what's the second card you've got for us today? Yeah, so these are probably, in terms of the way that they're, they're produced and the content slightly more familiar to a modern eye, they, they look much more like the, the touristic snapshots that we're, we're used to. Um, and it's part but, of But a, what an image. What an image. Um, so before I move on to the image, I'll give you a brief overview. It's, a, it's, it's part of a series, and you have many of these series during the, during the war, um, of historic Arras, uh, which is a, a town in uh, the north of France. It used to be part of the Spanish Netherlands. So it's, it's very beautiful. It's got Baroque archi- architecture up to its neck. And... Many of these series existed of these towns that were subjected to the, the violence of the First World War. And what they did is they charted the violence. So in this case, it's um, by a producer who produced a series of cards like this over the course of the war. But this is showing the destruction between 1914 and 1916. So it misses the 
the worst battle of the war, which, uh, or the worst battles of the war around Arras, which were in 1917 and 1918. And what this one shows is it's Le, Le Petit Place, so the small square in Arras and the ruins of the Hotel de Ville. I, just as an aside, when I was a child and we went to France, I used to think, oh, there's, every town has a town hotel, and I don't understand... <laughs> I don't understand why. And, and quite Little grand. Know. <laughs> quite grand town hotels, but I haven't seen anybody going in or out. Um, Exclusive. But as we know, it's a city hall. And I think that the thing that draws me to this series and the reason I bought it as well for my collection is twofold. Firstly, I follow quite closely the story of one soldier called Captain G.K. Rose, uh, okay. who served in one of the territorial units of the... Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry during the war, so close to home as well. And he produced a series of sketches from this very square during this very year, but from between those columns you see in the background. So you can see the Brock um, houses on the far side of the square behind the the ruins of the town hall. And the whole square would have been surrounded by this sort of colonnade, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be... yeah, it is to this day. They, they actually reconstructed Arras after the war. About three quarters of the city was in ruins, particularly after 1917-1918 battles. And they, you can see the square in its full glory today. And you walk under the, the, under the columns and there's shop fronts underneath there and some restaurants. But I like to think that uh, Captain G.K. Rose is sitting underneath those columns in the darkness behind there uh, at this very time the, the picture was taken. But also, it, it, it speaks to me a little bit about me and my dad have, over the years, gone on many what he likes to describe as boys' trips. Although I think girls were very much allowed. It just so happened it was the two of us, and we went to a lot of old battlefields because my dad's an economist. But I think he always wanted me to be a historian, so he's lived his life vicariously through my <laughs> academic pursuits. And one of our last trips was to the Western Front. This was 2019, so one of uh, the last trips before COVID struck and made that impossible. And we went to Arras and we actually went into the reconstructed uh, Hotel de Ville and you can go down into the basements which survived the bombardments. Arras has a series of very deep basements connected to the old quarries um, from the medieval mining days there. And actually soldiers used to live in them to avoid the bombardments. And so we actually walked around the reconstituted Hotel de Ville. So I hadn't seen an image of it in its uh, less glorious days. And I don't know, it, it, it was just one of those strange moments. When you study the war, you, you often wonder, OK, what would have it been like to be there at the time? Mm-hmm. And these kind of postcards give you a really vivid window onto exactly what it would have looked like for the soldiers trying to describe it in their letters home. And then when you've been there, it adds this other dimension. Um, Quite perversely, I think a lot of historians kind of wish they could have seen it as it was destroyed. Um, and this, I guess it's the best opportunity to do so without having to put oneself in danger and cool. see all of the, uh, the fairly morbid sights that accompanied the destruction. But there's these, the, 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 well, there are many, many cards of, of destruction mm. of towns in France. I don't remember as a kid, you used to see them in like jumble sales and stuff. They were the most common cards you'd see in a way. And, and I wasn't yeah. really collecting postcards then, but, but the sort of blasted towns. And there is something sort of curious about them because it's almost like a sort of surrealistic fantasy of destruction of the urban. After a while, mm. it becomes not more than photo, uh, photojournalism. It becomes a sort of 
a celebration of the ruin. As what, what more ruined image can we find? What angle can we put more blocks of stone in the foreground? It's, mm. it's, a, it's a sort of strange aesthetic that develops. Yeah, I mean, it's almost fetishizing the, the destruction. Mm. Um, I actually, I have found a postcard by sent by a soldier home, which showed uh, a slightly destroyed school in a an undescript village along the western front. And the main message on the postcard said, "I'm sorry, dear. I wanted to get a better picture of ruins, but this is the only one I could find." Um, says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, th- this is the thing: the soldiers were also tourists, as well as being yes. as well as being servicemen. And for many of them, it was their first time abroad. Equally. Many of the officers or wealthier rank and file would have had opportunities to travel and may have actually seen these towns in their former glory. So having these postcards shows something else. But they're also part of the propaganda campaign. Right? So this is actually a less aggressive one, but you often see these, um, these destroyed towns, particularly Ypres or Albert on the Somme, and they'll have uh, accompanying messages which say, uh, an example of the destru- destruction of the, the ghoulish vampires. Um, right. And it gives you a real sense. I mean, I think we forget this today, generally in popular culture, but the way that the Germans were portrayed in the First World War was very akin to the way the Nazis were portrayed in the Second World War. Uh, You had to convey a sense of this uh, demonic enemy. And the best way to do so is to take these beautiful cities, examples of often medieval culture, if you you go to Ypres, but in here, I mean, uh, early modern culture and wealth in the Spanish Netherlands and just show what the destruction of war does. Um, I mean, it's really similar. I don't, I don't know if you, I'm sure you guys remember, but when, uh, when ISIS started destroying Palmyra and all of those other yes, sites in, in Syria, in many ways it was the destruction of heritage and history more than the loss of life, which really pushed people to want to intervene. I mean, there's something really perverse and slightly unsettling about the way that yes. the destruction of history often has a greater impact on people's horror of war than, I mean, these loose reports of uh, casualties do. Yes, yes, yes. And that, yeah, absolutely right. And is it, I don't know if it's a sort of genuine sense that we're losing our, our patrimony, our, 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 our inheritance with this, the cultural inheritance, or whether it's just that we, we, we're a bit weird about stones. I mean, you can sort of look mm. towards the whole separate thing, but the whole statue debate that goes on now, we get funny about things that are made of stone. I think I think it's because they represent permanence and we're scared if permanence isn't quite so permanent. Yeah, I think so. I mean, buildings are meant to outlive us, right? And yeah. we all accept our own lack of permanence. But once once you see history disappear, it adds a... Is nothing stable? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, and it's real, I feel it. I, I'm, not, yeah. you know, I'm not mocking. I, I think, and, and, you know, when we saw the Palmyra being destroyed, we were shocked. It was upsetting. It was upsetting. I think yeah. I mean, this this particular image is is particularly powerful. With this, you know, it looks like the uh, a, a sort of enforced quarry in the foreground, just blocks of stone, but then such an elegant, beautiful side to the square in the background. I mean, it, it's it's very very articulate. It says it all. It's, it's all it's all there in the image. Mm. Yeah, well, I completely what, agree. I was just thinking as well. It it's sort of it's very romanticised, and it it reminds me very much the way that. Uh, the image is looking. You've got that, as, you know, when you have old postcards of castles and ruins and follies and that sort of thing. You've got, you know, just to the side there, you've got that building on the right, and you've got the rubble in the foreground, and it's just that sort of. It I don't know. It's very evocative, and I just mm. wonder, you know, that, I mean, obviously that 
is deliberately chosen by the photographer, which just reminded me of a sort of a ruined castle, you know, the ones with the single towers remaining. Corfe Castle or something. Yeah, possibly, yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's like it's arrived in the middle of an, uh, 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 an urban environment. Mm. We'll just plonk it there. Yeah, those oh, well, the juxta- juxtaposition popular. is so powerful. Mm. Yeah, and those, though, all of those kind of images that Karen was describing are really popular at this time as well. I mean, that that period at the end of the nineteenth century where there, were, there was an obsession with distant history. I mean, we're talking about um, we were talking about this at the beginning of the podcast, but that's the kind of thing that's used to start to create narratives about British national identity. So it's probably yeah. not surprising that these kind of images were then popular um, during the First World War. Yes, and you know we are still in the earlier days of um, lots of cameras being used in the open air, using natural light. You know, photography was still not everywhere the way it is now. Mm. And you've you've got the wrapper as well for these. So that's is, have you got the whole set? Or well, there's. I mean, interestingly, there's two that are missing from the very front. I'm just looking at it now. So I've got most of the set. But clearly, whoever purchased this did have time to send two of the postcards. Right. Now, they're the first two, so it looks like they, they planned to send them all. Um, but often what they would do is they'd send these, these series home as a memento yeah. for themselves as much as for their families. Uh, and, I mean, I think the really fascinating thing is for a long time we assumed that the world of the soldier and the world of the civilian were entirely disentangled and that there was this chasm of understanding between them. But these are the kind of postcards which really give you a sense of just how untrue that is. Yes. Uh, soldiers were able to convey the sights they saw and to chart the world they, they lived in um, in, a, in a very vivid and often really visceral way. Um, the only thing missing from this series is the dead. But, I mean, mm. there was good reason to not send pictures of the dead to your, your loving and worried family. Well, quite. And, you know, they're not photojournalists. They're people having to mediate everything and they know who they they know who they're talking to they don't want to upset them exactly very good very good well i, I feel like i've had a um an insight into first of all postcards which actually has of course piqued my interest and i want to go and look at more and see what i've got sitting in a box somewhere and and kind of uh, assess them assess them anew which is which is really really good thank you now karen what's the final card you've um You've got waving in your hand. What have you got for us? Yeah, this is I a have actually card, literally. Yes, it is literally waving in my hand. I'm looking, Good. holding it quickly <laughs> and looking at it and smiling. Um, so yeah, this 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 brings together uh, several strands. I mean, I think it's very difficult to choose one postcard um, <laughs> that sort of encapsulates Sorry. several things. Well, yes, <laughs> um, but this is uh, the Grand Hotel in Torquay, um, and it also shows you Corbin Head Beach there with uh, various beach huts. It's a 1980s beach scene, so it's very modern. And um, it's the sort of postcard which, when I went on holiday and bought, uh, you know, you buy various postcards to send to people back home, that I probably would have sent to the person I liked least because, you know, you have (laughs) scenes. Um, Cuddly cats and that sort of thing went to my friends and, you know, these sort of ones weren't... um, I didn't like them so much, but it's completely reversed now, of course. Um, I buy postcards now, such as this one, because they... um, they show the buildings that I'm researching, you know, a slice of um, a slice of history at that very point in time. And I really like this one because it has beach huts and it has the hotel. Um, they represent the two books that I've written um, about the seaside, um, one on beach huts, one on seaside hotels. So you didn't write a book about uh, rusty railings at all then? 
Not yet. I could okay. <laughs> add that to the list. <laughs> Just keep this one in mind if, if you ever do. <laughs> could be popular, could be quite niche. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but also, um, I wanted the Grand Hotel uh, Torquay to be yes. on the front cover of my book. Um, and I stood for a, a number of hours at this same vantage point, trying <laughs> to get a good photograph of this, this view as well. Um, and it it really wasn't a very good photo and in fact on on the first i think mock-up of the cover it, it is floating around there on the on the internet um uh, th- there is this very gray dismal view of of the grand hotel Torquay, and it's it's not very good and i'm very glad in fact that the publisher went with another another image altogether the, the of, picture um, you chose in the end is it does make it look well not unlike a french chateau but amazing well, the beach looks amazing it just looks beautiful that's, yeah, that's the Queen's Hotel in Eastbourne. Um, oh. Similar sort of, yes. <laughs> it's a completely different that's, hotel altogether. That's why you know about these things and not me. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you're, you're right. It they does look of a similar, piece, though, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, they have got similar characteristics. Also, the, the Grand Hotel in Landudno as well. Um, grand hotels, they reflected the architecture fashion of the time. So these grand hotels, you know, having turrets and, you know, they were built to impress in, in prime locations. So they really grab your attention and... That's why you get so many grand hotels uh, subject of postcards as well, because they're landmarks, you know, in their own right, really. Big, lumpy buildings that you could you could get on a postcard. Yeah, well, some of them are a lot more elegant than others, I guess. Um, but they sort of, you know, right from early postcards of these hotels, they're, they're, you know, very dominant and they're there. And what I particularly like about this postcard as well, if we turn it over and see um, who wrote uh, the card they actually mentioned the hotel as well so this so is a I, card you've purchased second hand this is it's one i've purchased second hand yeah. yes because it has all the elements that i kind yes. of liked it's um yeah, yeah. you know it's got the hotel it's got the beach huts it's not too uh, far away in time from when i went to uh, from my childhood holidays uh, the very first holidays i went on as a child to to Torbay, um Torquay and Paynton. we never stayed in a hotel it was always self-catering caravan um that sort of thing and of course, living in Birmingham, um, growing up in Birmingham, we could be very fickle as to the seasides we visited. So, oh, I see. Nothing go... was very close. So. No, no, not really. So um, Western Supermare, I think. <laughs> yes, right. day trips to Western, and then we'd yes. um, when we had a car until I was about age nine. So we could go to North Devon. We went to Lincolnshire, and also North Wales were the sort of mixed and match between those. I never um, and then of after that, I was... most people have a seaside that that they consider to be sort of local. Well, this is what I found out. Yeah, when I sort of, um, I think some people do go to the same same place, but it's when I sort of mixed with, you know, you you get older and you you move move away from your hometown, and you realise that people used to go to the same seasides all the time, and I was just a bit a bit shocked by that because we'd been around the coast um, at various places, and after I was about nine, um, my mum was a single parent, so it was anywhere we could get to on the train that was cheap and cheerful. So, what would be the easiest um, place by train then for you? Um, well, we went to Anglesey. We went to oh, yes. um, uh, where else? Did we we went to uh, Mablethorpe. Um, right. A couple of times. So it was yeah, it was sort of, um, and we went to Westwood Ho, Ilfracombe, that sort of thing. Lots of brummies along the North Devon coast. Right. <laughs> of course, when you go by train, you um, you're kind of replicating uh, the journey that a lot of people would have made in those early days of the sort of uh, well, so after the First World War, probably, but you know, around that time. Oh, absolutely. And and the fun thing was, back in the 80s, we, you still had those old-fashioned trains with the individual carriages in them. Right. 
and you couldn't reserve your seats then. So it was my job as the eldest child to um, get on the train with a, with a few bags and run and find a carriage that the four of us could sit in, like me, my mum and my two sisters as well. Oh. Um, so, and full you know, of excitement, presumably. Full of excitement and also terror because, you know, I was quite a shy thing at the age of 10 or whatever, trying to, you know, move through the, all the throngs of people. Um, was you know a little daunting, but it was, and then we'd get on and eat our sandwiches, whatever. It doesn't matter if it was eleven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, get that, get that out the way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. <Brilliant laughs> so yeah, fam- family holidays. So many memories and um, yeah. so many postcards I could have bought with me today. But um, there you go. So, so what's the um, message on this one? This this anonymous person. Well, we we do know yes. who they are, don't we? Uh, we it, well, we we know the addressee, and we know that the person that wrote the card was called Mary. Okay. Um, so they write, we've just had our lunch here at the Grand, uh, met a lot of inner wheelers having their AGM. Uh, so Joan and Nana are well away having chats. I had to, did have to look up what, who the inner wheelers were because I'm not Is sure. Is it a rotary club thing? Or? It's, it's kind of a, a women's network and I think they have lunches oh. at hotels. Like a friendship friendship groups, I think that probably Sounds started in America. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to look them up. I think. <laughs> Don't fancy having my lunches at Grand Hotels. That sounds great. Got to learn something every day. You made a new contact there. <laughs> yes, um, and then they, of course they go on to mention the weather. Uh, the weather is dull, uh, but I hope it will clear up. Um, and they went yesterday to the Singer Mansion. Um, oh. Expect you have been there. And the Singer Mansion is um, a hotel um, in Paynton, nearby Paynton. It was a former mansion of uh, the son of Isaac Singer, he, he of sewing uh, machine fame. So, wow. um, sort of sightseeing a go-go. And also, uh, I like the fact it mentioned another hotel that I visited and enjoyed a cocktail or two in. So that was kind of a nice link there as well. Yeah. So one, I wanted to ask you about these grand hotels because mm. there's a you see that you see images of them all around the coast and they were pretty well every... They were almost a definition of a sizable coastal town or seaside town. Yes, absolutely. But, but they all, pretty well, all seem to have emerged individually. It's not like someone went round putting, like they might now, putting Trust House Fortes or whatever, Holiday Inns. <laughs> they they yeah. all sort of emerged, I don't say organically, but from local businessmen seeing an opportunity and making it happen. It's strange. Yeah. It's a real sort of movement. In, it was in the air or, or in the bank balance. It was a very lucrative business to get into. Um, I mean, well, in fact, it did cause the ruin and uh, the bankruptcy of of quite a few individuals, um, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I mean, it, they sort of emerged. The Grand Hotels emerged in the middle of the nineteenth century, um, and they were um, they were huge. They were big undertakings. They wanted they needed to attract a certain clientele of people. So when you, the railways came along and opened up the coast, and you got sort of more more and more different kinds of people visiting the seasides um there would be very many inns and you know i suppose the equivalent of bed and breakfast and that sort of thing but you needed to attract the you know the people with money the aristocracy the wealthy so these grand hotels were very very much set apart they were monumental um they were you know quite foreboding if you didn't belong there you wouldn't mm. have felt welcome there at all not just because they had stuff on the door but inside it would be very imposing entrances and different rooms uh, for different activities, but, you know, sort of rooms just for men, like the smoking rooms, the billiard rooms, um, and then you'd have obviously de- various dining rooms, some of them private dining rooms as well. People would stay for the whole season in these places and they would go promenading or, you know, being driven in their horse and carriage up and down. They, they were there to be seen. Um, so, yeah, building a, a grand hotel was a, an excellent way to make some money. 
And it's not until the, towards the end of the 19th century that you see um, the first sort of chain, what we'd call now chain hotels appearing. Um, you've got Gordon Hotels. There's a chap called Frederick Gordon who he'd made um, quite a lot of money building some hotels in London and he saw the coast as an excellent opportunity. And he built a lot of hotels. Um, a lot of them were called the Met Metropole. So, for example, the Metropole in Brighton um, oh. was built there. And, it, you know, a direct rival to the Grand Hotel, which had been in existence for a couple of decades already. Yeah, um, so Brighton is kind new... of full of Grand Hotels of one kind. I mean, in the broader sense, Brighton. Grand Brighton's amazing. The, the whole seafront, uh, you know, the, the whole history of the seafront hotels in Brighton is uh, is a fantastic history. You've got bankruptcies, you've got, uh, you know, uh, old hotels being swept away in favour of new modern 1960s monstrosities. Um, I know some people are, do quite like those, but um, I'm not a fan. Um, and yes, you've got that sort of whole uh, development of, of, of history going on in that short space, geographical space as well. I have this vision that um, you have these uh, huge hotels, and I've stayed. I stayed at, I think I was thinking when I went to your book. I think the only one I've ever stayed at. I stayed at one of the very big hotels in Blackpool years ago mm. um, for some work, and it was a bit. You know, it's probably lovely now, but it was a bit shabby. Uh, probably oh, fifteen well, this years is it. ago. These hotels. I mean, they've they've suffered quite a lot after the First World War. After they've been requisitioned, um, and the Second Second World War as well. Um, you know, they were struggling to compete with the more modern uh, buildings that were being uh, constructed. And, of course, every hotel, that's every new hotel that's built, has all the mod cons. So if you've, if you've been yeah. around for 30 yeah. years, 30 years is a long time in technology. And when all these Edwardian hotels, for example, were being built at the end of the 19th century, their uh, predecessor grand hotels from sort of the 1860s and 70s were struggling to compete. They, ha- they couldn't have um, ascending rooms, which are lifts, you know, that, they didn't have the latest technology in um, air, what we'd say, air conditioning or heating and lighting. So it was always a struggle. Every decade is a struggle for a big yeah. hotel. Particularly and it's bath, great. bathroom protocols as well. Exactly. I think. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The ensuite. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, also competing with fashionable cities as well, like London, you know, yes. you know, which really was some amazing hotels there. I mean, staying in a grand hotel today can be quite... Um, an experience, depending on where you stay, there are some that are, are just amazing and still give you that grand hotel experience, whereas others are more of a faded sort of grandeur experience. Experience, and um, I like both. I, I do like I to have, stay. I have at both. this vision of um, one of these hotels in the fifties or something when you got you know I don't know how many rooms they had, three hundred rooms or something, and in every room someone's sitting there writing a postcard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, it was probably uh, true. It was probably, especially, especially if it's raining. Yes, yes. Well, that's what you do when you that's when you write your postcards. It's when it's absolutely tipping down outside. I think so. I think so. With a caravan or hotel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd have thought. I suppose um, the holiday camps might have also um, in, impinged a bit onto the uh, the hotels, unless the hotels were always a bit too expensive uh, for that. Um, for I that mean, I, I didn't. I never stayed at a hotel until I was twenty. We always went. Um, self-catering in a caravan and, or a right. chalet. Or we did, and we went to a holiday camp in Mablethorpe, which wasn't a Butlins or a Pontin. But oh, right. um, we had fun. What was it, that it one? Didn't matter. It was called Trustville Holiday Camp. Oh, was it an independent one? a great one? time there. I think it was. I think it might even still be there, actually. It might still be open. Um, I need to go and revisit it. <laughs> yes. Well, we are allowed to go and visit our own coast at the moment, if nowhere else. So maybe we should yes. take advantage. Absolutely. The... the, the S-cation word. 
but we are, no, we are allowed but, to. Uh, I mean, one thing is is that's quite important. Um, the hospitality industry has, you know, suffered quite badly over the last year or so. So it's it is important to go and visit our hotels at the coast. You don't need to stay there. You can go there for a dinner or a cocktail or a special occasion meal. Um, but we they do need. Who, to who are you working for here? There's something going on. Oh, here. <laughs> I'm I'm an advocate for our built heritage, Good especially seaside heritage. So yeah. yes, I, I you think know you're absolutely right. And 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 you know what? I, I, I've I've not been uh, during these various lockdowns. I've not been craving a trip to um, southern Spain. That would be nice. Mm. But I, I got to the stage one day, I just thought we, we've got to go to the seaside. I, I need to get mm. some fresh air at the seaside. And there comes a point where you just need that, I think. Which one would you go to? Well, the easy one to walk the dogs, for me, is Salt Dean near Brighton. Oh, I love that. Very near Peace Haven, where they were in that postcard. I know a very nice Art Deco hotel there that's no longer a hotel. Yes, but it, that's flats now, is it? It is. I mean, they've actually done a very good job. Um Yes, that was that was an amazing um, Art Deco hotel in the 30s. But it, I mean, thankfully, it is it's still there. But you can't sort of um, use it as a hotel, obviously, because it's it is flats indeed. Yeah, I've never poked around the outside. Maybe I should go and have a poke around there next time. I think you should. You, can you go up to look at it? And is that right? Or? Well, it's it's flat, so I'm sure there's public access <laughs> until, to a point until they kick you out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm in desperate need of exploring the the English and British country, uh, countryside and seaside. Now I, yeah. I'm sadly I'm ill-informed of the architecture and nature of many of our best resorts. Um, oh, well, but for a, for a shorthand, I recommend Karen's book on the seaside hotels. That'll get you started. Oh, thank you. I mean, who, the problem is, it's like an ice spy book. You, you want to tick them all off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, when I was researching, I, I couldn't stay at them all. Obviously, I'd be bankrupt. But um, yeah. I, you know, did try and try their bars and their cocktails and their G&Ts as I was working my way around the coast. <laughs> it's a wonder you've got anything written. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, thank you for that that, that, that rush of ozone from, from um, the seaside <laughs> hotels. That's very good. And then thank you both um, for sharing your postcards today. Um, I've said it before, I never know where the postcards will send us. Um, I'm, I'm delighted you shared them with me, with each other, with, with the listeners. Um, and quite a lot of history today, which is really interesting. Um, another quick reminder for listeners at home, images of all these cards with the right backs associated with the right fronts um, are going to be on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk. So if you feel we haven't described them sufficiently, you can look at the pictures too. Um, and now before we let Karen and Alex both off the line, I've got one more postcard for you both. Um, it's customary for us to end the show with one of these. Normally I would hand this across to you and we could all enjoy it. Um, it's, it's the last card on your dope sheet. Um, so what you've got there, I don't know if you can see it. Can you see a picture of a sort of um, a, a painting of a maybe Mediterranean harbour, little bay? Can you, can you see yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, well, and, and as you can see, there's a message on it. Uh, many happy returns of the day. And it's all sort of very subtle colours. It's sort of uh, chocolate box image, really. Lots of uh, rather faded colours. And there's a, a white blob in the middle. And, of course, that is the hole for a spindle to go in because this is, uh, as usual, a postcard that is also a gramophone record. Ooh. And uh, this one, is, is, I think it's an English one. Often they're Hungarian or sometimes Polish. Um, but this one is made by a company called Melody Cards of London. Um, and and the patent is still pending. 
<laughs> I don't, who knows when that patent will be approved? <laughs> to be honest, they need to get the skates on now. <laughs> um, anyway, young Tom over at Wardour Studios has um, made a digital recording of this. Uh, I know because I watched him do it. And if we ask him nicely, he can play us the sound of the postcard. Not bad. Love it. Somebody loves me. I always say the same thing. Go to music. Is it? <laughs> it's not bad for a piece of cardboard. No, exactly. Fantastic. And in fact, they did produce these in Edwardian times, uh, little ones. Um, did they? But I have not been able to get hold of one that I've managed to play yet. Um, that Tux did them. Fragile. Fragile and. Somebody loves me. They're, they're so tiny that the record players don't like to play that close to the spindle anymore. But I, uh, I do need to get one of them going. Oh, this, this is, is delightful. A, it's not bad, is it? As a birthday oh, a card. Lovely, I think it's lovely. I wouldn't mind receiving one. Birthday's next month, by the way. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I'll have a word with myself 40 years ago and see if I've got any of these left. Very good. Well, look, as the little harbour continues to rotate at exactly 45 revolutions per minute that's it for this time on podcast from the past i'd very much like to thank my first class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts and our pasts and all our pasts alex mayhew and karen averby thank you both and thank you for listening bye for now see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book Postcard from the Past by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.